Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hello and welcome to this education-focused episode of Behind the Knife. We are the General Surgery Education Group from Cleveland Clinic. I am Jeremy Lippman, the Program Director for the General Surgery Residency. And I'm Judith French. I'm the PhD Education Scientist for the Department of General Surgery. And I'm Amy Hahn. I'm a General Surgery Resident currently in professional development serving as the Surgical Education Research Fellow. So today we'll be discussing the ever-challenging question of how we can identify and subsequently help struggling residents. We're pleased to welcome Dr. Kyla Terhoon, who will be joining us as our guest speaker. This is an important topic for listeners at various stages in training, as well as surgical educators. We'll ask Dr. Terhoon some questions on this topic and present some real-life cases where Dr. Terhoon will weigh in and offer her advice on how to help struggling residents excel. We do have one caveat for this episode. The strategies and solutions discussed during this episode may not be applicable and suitable for all residents. Both identifying and implementing remediation strategies should be taken in context of the situation and individualized. So we're thrilled to have uh, Dr. Kyla Terhune here with us. And Dr. Terhune is the Vice President for Educational Affairs and the Associate Dean for Graduate Medical Education at Vanderbilt. She received her medical degree from University of Pennsylvania, then surgery residency and critical care fellowship at Vanderbilt. And she was the program director there for the general surgery residency for five years before moving to the Office of Graduate Medical Education in 2019. She is a lifelong educator and coach going all the way back to when she taught biology and chemistry in high school and coached the winning varsity teams in basketball and tennis at that time. Very impressive. She's received innumerable teaching awards, is on the editorial board for the Journal of Surgical Education, and is the president-elect of the Association of Program Directors in Surgery. So I think someone very well qualified to answer the questions that we're posing to her today. Uh, I'd also like to point out that during her first five years on faculty of Vanderbilt, she lived with 318-year-olds in their resident hall. And we'll definitely want to explore that a little further later. Uh, and so it should come as no surprise with all of this background that one of her favorite things to do is coaching at the individual level. We chose Dr. Terhune for this episode because she has previously written on this topic and served as the program chair for the APDS meeting where M&M for program directors premiered. She has an incredible breadth of experience and knowledge on this topic, and we're just thrilled to welcome her. So Dr. Terhune, in your practice, how do you define a struggling resident? First of all, thanks very much uh, for having me here. I really uh, appreciate the invitation. And the struggling resident, it's a little bit difficult to define. And sometimes I have trouble with the word struggling uh, because I feel like it labels or gives a negative connotation. Um, And 
all of us have areas where we are working to to improve. And if we ever have areas we don't work to improve, then we're we're probably not in the continuum of our continued learning, if you will. So defining the struggling, though, if I were forced to to define it or asked to define it, uh, I would say that we we usually use that to define a resident who is not progressing at the level that we would expect. Um, and that's very subjective, but, uh, if they are not progressing in a certain, and I would like to be even more granular, where are they struggling? Are they struggling in technical skills and operative skills and cognitive skills? Um, but in any of those areas, anyone, uh, can have areas that they can improve. You can also struggle in, uh, issues outside of the professional world that affect the professional world. Uh, you can struggle in your personal life. You can struggle with finances and all of those things actually will have an impact on your ability to learn. So it's, it's a very broad, I like to be as specific as we can about areas where, where people need to improve. So then how can teaching faculty and maybe other residents recognize that one of their peers or um, that a resident is struggling or needing improvement? Yeah. I mean, again, I think that teacher and the learner in these situations, uh, we are often in both situations in our career or in our residency at the same time. So for example, if you're a PGY3, there are many situations where you will be the teacher. There are many situations where you will be the learner. And so there are areas of your progression that I would expect you to struggle in. For example, a PGY3 you know, I would expect you to struggle if someone said, why don't you come assist me on this Whipple today? And you would need to prepare yourself and think about it. Um, however, if we really say, how do you identify and then how do you work with someone who is not reaching that level? Um, that becomes a little bit of a, of a different question. So one is humility and understanding that we're all uh, on that continuum. Um, but two is I would recommend to teaching faculty and to residents who are working with someone that they have identified as struggling, that they really get as specific as possible. What is the area that this um, this deficiency or this area of improvement is? And then that's the only way you can figure out how you can address it. And what about for residents who them who they themselves might think that they're struggling? How would you, um, how can they recognize that in themselves? If you yourself recognize you're struggling, that is probably the best prognostic indicator that you will improve, right? Because that indicates that you might have some insight. So if I, if I, as a resident, go into a case and realize that I was not tying knots well, or I was, or I didn't understand the process, or I didn't um, work on some of the exposure the way I would like to, and I recognize that I'm struggling, that's great because then I can say, here's where I need to work. I can also seek out help. Um, and so if, if you yourself recognize that you're having difficulties with something, that's the best indicator that you have the opportunity to improve. The dangerous situation, I think, is when you don't recognize or if someone gives you feedback that you are having difficulty in a certain area and you react with defensiveness. Um, and so and I think that that's one of the hardest things to learn is realize that when someone gives you, well, first, it's hard to learn to give feedback. But it's also hard to receive the feedback in a constructive way that you can then move forward. Um, and I think that's especially prevalent among um, residents and doctors in general who have been on a pathway of success. And residency is sometimes the first time they hit something that's a little bit different from what they've learned about in the past. So what should we advise our trainees? Because that can be a difficult step to recognize that they're not doing well and then going and seeking out the help that we want them to get. So how can we advise the trainees to to make that jump and and put themselves in that uh, very vulnerable position? 
Yeah. I mean, this is really about the learning environment, right? This is about having a safe space. Um, and that safety is is really two things. One, it requires some courage on behalf of the learner. Um, but then it also requires having a safe space that they can really share with someone, here's where I am needing to improve. And again, I'll probably change the way I'm talking about it from struggling to here's where I need to improve. Um, but it does take a, a certain degree of accepting some vulnerability to be able to find that safe space. So so one, I would say, again, it's it's always a requires two people, the learner and the teacher. For the learner, you have to have courage to say, I don't know how to do this. And the mistake that you can make that we see in surgery residency a lot is you start avoiding those uncomfortable situations. Uh, we see that where people don't go to the operating room because it becomes an uncomfortable place for them. They don't feel like they're performing well. And that's just a perpetuating cycle. Um, so you have to be courageous to continue to put yourself in uncomfortable situations. You have to find someone safe that you can express that you're having um, difficulty. And then from the teaching side, you have to create that safe space. You cannot label people. Um, and that's why I don't really like the word struggling uh, because that's a label. Um, that is not that person. They have a things that they need to work on. So what better way to help them improve than to identify those things and give them the tools and a safe space in which they can learn those tools um, and learn to improve. And, and we in medicine, and I think in surgery, um, are known sometimes for not perpetuating that learning environment, but uh, there's no reason not to. And um, it's really our duty to patients. If a resident does recognize us in themselves, though, it can be hard for them to make that jump and, and reach out and ask for help. What do you advise for the trainee who recognizes that they're underperforming, but maybe is embarrassed or doesn't know where to start to look for the support that they feel like they need? Um, it is really hard to say I'm struggling in this area. It is That's why it's one of the best prognostic indicators. It is really hard to say I need help in this area. Um, but it also, you need a parachute and that parachute is the environment around you is people allowing you to express that, that vulnerability. Um, and the uh, social psychologist, Anders Erickson will talk about, um, being able to share that mental model and being able to share where you have a weakness and being able to receive expert feedback and then going out and able to practice that and then returning to that is the quickest way, um, that people can achieve expert status, uh, in their field and, and making that jump, um, on a day-to-day -day basis of being able to say, here's where I need to improve and having someone say, okay, let's, let's go this direction with it is, is key to that learning. They bring the courage. We bring the parachute. Exactly. They have the ability to jump out and we bring the parachute. All right. So as leaders in education, there's a lot of tools that are available for us to try to assess residents and figure out at a bigger picture, who is not performing where they should be? We've got things like the ACS's ERA, the ACGME's milestones. There's tons of different tools out there. Which of those do you think are the most helpful? And what are the things we should be using to help leaders recognize the resident who's not moving along as they should be when the resident may not have that insight themselves? All of the things that you mentioned, I would add into that uh, simple. Um, the SWISH scale, uh, there are a bunch of other supervisory or autonomy scales. All of those are great assessment devices that quantify what we know when we see it, um, that this person is, is underperforming or has areas that they need to improve. Um, but it's important to realize that those are assessment tools. And so while, the, while many are, are great, and all the ones that you mentioned have different uses, what you're really trying to do is help that resident, one, recognize it, and two, 
uh, improve and get past that. And the improving and get past that and receiving the feedback and, and practicing in a way that allows them to achieve is really much more nuanced than that. And that takes into account understanding the individual, understanding um, what they can share, how they work, um, what their extraneous uh, constraints may be, um, and really how to coach them into being the best version of themselves and the best version of a surgeon um, that they can be. And that's that's the harder part. So the assessments are great, um, but we really have to get past that point. And I would say the key to that is communication. Um, two-way, kind of like the parachute that we talked about earlier, um, between the teacher and the learner. And those teachers are on-the-ground faculty members. So what I'd really love to see is not a focus on assessment tools, um, but a focus on uh, teaching our on-the-ground faculty members, not the program directors or people who are already geared towards education or have done the reading, but our on-the-ground faculty members and how to recognize in the operating room uh, how to lead a person to the next level because a majority of our learning still very appropriately takes place uh, as we're working with with patients and, and with our on-the-ground faculty. All right. So we want to give you a few cases to run through. And for the purposes of this, we're going to assume that you're the program director because uh, you're certainly recognized as an expert in that area. And we're going to assume that it's September 3rd. So a couple months into residency, everyone's knocked the rust off their wheels and is sort of going where they're going to be. And your chief residents come to meet with you to talk about some issues that they've been having with residents on their teams. And they're looking for your advice on how to sort out whether these are real concerns and what they should do to help their colleagues. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. So the first one is a PGY3 who gets along great with the nurses and the OR staff. Everyone loves their work ethic, communication skills. They can efficiently do their tasks. But on multiple occasions, they've identified that she has significant knowledge gaps. And they tell you about this one time that she couldn't uh, figure out the right dose to replete some electrolytes. There is a patient who mentioned they had a little bit of nausea and she wanted to put in an NG tube. Uh, there was a patient with symptomatic colothiasis in the clinic that had been going on for months and she wanted to do an ERCP. Just a bunch of things that really demonstrated she was way behind. So what would you advise to these chiefs that they should do? It's interesting because each of those three things, so repleting electrolytes, um, I think it was a very different thing from the NG tube and the ERCP issue, which I think are a little bit more um, application oriented uh, in terms of like cognitive understanding of the situation and making a clinical decision. Um, but I would say part of it is communication. Um, there's a social psychologist who's, who's passed away named Anders Erickson. I'll probably refer to him several times, but he talks about mental models and that to really understand what someone is, is thinking to try to redirect their thinking, you have to understand their mental model and their assessment of the situation. Um, and so with this individual, I mean, they have the work ethic, they're showing up, they're friendly, they have the professionalism. Um, it sounds a little bit more cognitive and um, application of medical knowledge. And I think you have to look to see if there are other clues. Um, 
Have they uh, struggled on AppSite? Have things, now people can struggle on AppSite for different reasons, but have they not been able to um, show that they have medical knowledge? Have they not been able to read? Have they not been able to process? Um, and it's also interesting because in the PGY3 year, we assume that everyone has similar experiences, but depending on your rotation and your rotation order, um, some of it may not be, uh, some of it may be related to exposure to certain scenarios that they just haven't had the opportunity to think through that or work through that. Um, so I'd say the first thing with those chiefs and what I would really do as program director and as a general surgeon myself, and all those are general surgery related situations, um, would just try to see a patient uh, with this resident and understand what their thinking is and which direction they're going and what they've had exposure to. Um, this could go a lot of, of different directions. I think the electrolyte repletion is a little bit harder to understand because I think you'd really have to drill down as to um, why they would not know how to do that at this point. I think that would be unusual, even for someone who's struggling uh, in the PGY3 year. Um, but for the others, I could actually see those just because no one has explained it to them before. They haven't been able to share with someone their knowledge gaps before. So I think doing and having those conversations in a non-punitive manner, but in a, let me, let me hear how you're thinking about this and uh, trying to teach someone and coach someone through thinking about things differently. Uh, you know, the ERCP and the NG tube, I think of those as, as plumbing and physiology issues. And sometimes talking to someone about um, the situation will redirect their thinking so that the next time they see that scenario, they think about it differently. I wouldn't label this person as, as out. I would, I would stop. They have all of the professionalism skills, potentially the insight as well, based on what you told me. Um, and I just try to drill down as to why they're thinking about things in the way that they're thinking about things. All right. So we have another scenario where uh, the chiefs have been working with this PGY2 resident who was closing the incision independently while the chief was scrubbed out to dictate the operative report at the computer. And when the chief went over to check before um, she was leaving, they noticed that the closure looked just terrible and had to be redone by the chief. And also earlier in the case, the same PGY2 resident was unable to tie knots without throwing several air knots that resulted in some bleeding and um, require the case to be prolonged. So how would you recommend um, kind of assessing this resident and what can we do to help um, this PGY2? Sure. Um, in all of these scenarios, I should have said at the beginning, the first thing you always ask a resident who you think is is needing improvement is just how they're doing, just making sure there's not anything external. However, you're describing this in this situation is almost a classic situation of either they've been avoiding the OR and avoiding technical skills and avoiding technical skills practice um, such that no one has seen them and or no one has offered them good constructive advice along the way, um, or they haven't put the effort in themselves. I think a PGY2 um, struggling tying knots or struggling closing incisions is a little bit of a failure on both part of the learner and the teacher. Um, so anyone who is putting in effort and seeking out feedback um, should be able to do the basic technical skills, because I think most of us would agree that the basic technical skills in some ways are the easiest to teach. In fact, this morning for a conference, I brought my 13-year-old in um, and demonstrated teaching two-handed knot tying. She's never done that before uh, with our surgical residents to really show that when you have a novice and you teach them and give them good feedback um, and then give them a certain way to practice and, and don't let them do it wrong, um, they should be able to get to the right right point. So technical skills alone in this situation, um, I would 
this is a person who needs a coach. Uh, and this is a person who needs to demonstrate and needs to practice and needs some very intensive, pra- uh, very intensive practice. They're not by any means out of the game. You heard me say that earlier, but the worst thing that could happen is to label this person as a poor technical resident. Um, because if you label someone positively or label someone poorly, you just label them and you haven't really helped them to the next step. Um, so this is a person who, uh, if this is the only deficiency and it's technical, which we often see isolated technical deficiencies, uh, this person needs to practice, they need to focus, and they also need feedback. You can't send them off to practice wrong, if that makes sense. But can we unpack this uh, 13-year-old simulation that you did? Can you yeah. more about that and what those of us who don't have 13-year-olds flying around can do? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think... So what we were really talking about this morning was was teaching procedures. And I think there are some steps to teaching procedures. One, you know, I was a basketball coach before this and and tennis. And I would tell you, I'm I'm probably worse at tennis than I am at basketball. Um, But uh, it's really the same principles for technical skills. Now, technical skills are not the cognitive skills. It's not operative judgment. It's not seeing consultations. It is purely technical skills. And there, you want to make sure that someone knows the equipment, knows what it is, uh, knows the steps of what they're supposed to do would be the next thing. And then you start working on some some nuances uh, and things like that. And the most important thing is when you have a novice or you have a learner, it's so wonderful because they're not, you know, you could teach them left hand, you could teach them right hand. It doesn't really matter because it's a new skill, um, but that they be taught correctly while they are doing it and that you don't let someone do something in the wrong way. Um, And that takes on behalf of the teacher, caring that the learner is doing it right. And on behalf of the learner, it takes uh, the ability to receive a lot of feedback because early on you will get a lot of feedback because you're more likely to be doing things in the incorrect way. Um, So yeah, this morning uh, I asked my 13 year old last night if she would come in this morning and do that with me. And she graciously um, agreed. That's fantastic. And what about learners who have the knowledge and have the skills, but maybe gets performance anxiety and struggles in the OR, but outside of the OR, they say in the sim lab, I can tie this knot beautifully and it's not an air knot. What do you recommend for those uh, residents? Yeah. So you just demonstrated great understanding of what the real deficiency is. So the deficiency is not that they can't do it. It's not that they don't know how to do it. It's not that they haven't demonstrated they could do it. It's in a specific situation they had difficulty doing it. Um, And so you really want to, you know, we talked about, you may not have, but you want to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. You want to expose them to the situation as much as possible that um, is holding them back. And so that's the perfect example of someone who starts to avoid the OR. They start to avoid um, the scenarios where they uh, ha- are exhibiting a low performance because they don't want to be labeled. But the problem is, is that then, you know, a year into it, they're 50 cases behind their peers, uh, and then they really are behind. Um, so in those situations, you really want to push that person. You want to encourage them. Uh, you want to kind of remind them that we've all been there um, and that everyone had to learn on a continuum and all, even the perfect, uh, you know, most technically advanced surgeons at one point could not tie their shoes. Um, and just encourage them to, to get out, get out there and put them in that, put themselves in that uncomfortable situation. Um, one, one technique with performance anxiety, what I will talk with residents is the performance anxiety in that situation is a fear of performance in front of your peers or in front of the faculty. If you can get that resident to focus on who they're really working for, which is the patient, often that's the trick. Um, I will have residents that they'll talk about, well, so-and-so thinks this, and I'm just like, I don't want to hear it. How's Mr. Jones doing today? 
And what are the things that you need to do for Mr. Jones care? Um, and so if you think about it, like performance anxiety, why should that even be a part of, of what we're thinking about? Why should that be even part of something that we're scared about? Well, it's because we've gone through this sort of pre-med and, you know, high performance uh, pathway. But really what we're doing is we're trying to take care of patients. It really matters the outcome of the patient and how well I tie the knot and how well I execute my judgment and how will I take care of that patient postoperatively? And that's what matters. And so then if you can distance that person from their performance, that also can sometimes help. All righty. So the next resident is a PGY-1 who was on call over the weekend with the chief resident. And when the chief checked in with him around 1 a.m. after scrubbing out of an OR case, he noticed that the PGY-1 resident had written this these beautiful notes for an elective lymph node biopsy consult and a non-urgent PEG consult, but failed to go assess the patient for a mesenteric ischemia and another consult to rule out compartment syndrome that had come in pretty much around the same time as the others. Um, How would you recommend uh, that this resident be um, identified? Sure. Um, So this is a, a, first of all, the PGY1. And you know, we kind of, we, we don't know what we don't know until we know we don't know it. Um, and a PGY1 resident, uh, often early in residency, it's about checking boxes and it's about, and sometimes there's not the understanding of, of triaging um, and knowing what you need to see. Um, so first thing it would be, this person needs direct feedback. The worst thing you can do in these situations is not call it to the attention of the resident. Um, it's not fair to them. Uh, it also doesn't help you the next time they're on call. Um, and if you call attention and just have the conversation with them, it also helps you assess insight. We talked about insight earlier. And for the resident to have insight and recognize that sometimes all it will take is a conversation and they realize, okay, I was just doing things in the order that I was told to do them, but you're right. And now I understand that. Um, so first is just a conversation. Second, if it's something triaging, obviously, as you get farther and farther in residency, it can mean different things, and it can mean sometimes that they're avoiding the riskier situations or they're avoiding um, the more difficult situations. And then it's a, it's a different scenario. But I would say for what you've given me right now with the PGY-1, I honestly would just start with a candid conversation, which is the most fair thing to them. And I would also be watching them very closely on call the next time. And when they do it correctly or when they triage better, make sure that they get the positive feedback. And I guarantee it'll be a little bit better than it was the previous time, even if it's not perfect, and that they get the constructive feedback when they need that as well. Uh, people who've reached this point are, in general, intelligent people. Uh, and if we, the worst thing you can do is label them and not give them the feedback. And so the first thing I would start with is conversation and active feedback. That's such a great point about uh, giving the positive reinforcement. I think a lot of us forget that. That's hard to, it's hard to remember it. It, it works. Okay, and we'll move on to our last case. So this is actually a case about the a classmate of the chief class. So this is a PGY5 resident who gets the Absite Award every year, matched to a top MIS fellowship, has been well-liked by the attendings. But your chiefs are letting you know that this resident has been observed yelling at nurses and hanging up on consultants. So what can we do? Yep, uh, this <laughs> this unfortunately comes up. I'd say you know it's not limited to the PGY five class. Uh, it's not limited to residents, and it's uh, sometimes found in faculty too. I learned through some hard experiences as a program director early on that the first 
question I had to ask anytime I was talking to a resident who was struggling with anything, I'm using the word struggling there, was just how are you? There were several times when, as a program director, as an early faculty member, I felt like it was my job to relay this negative feedback that the senior attending had called about. Um, And I learned that sometimes there were really significant things going on in that person's life that it was really amazing that they were even showing up to work. And that was probably a wake-up call for me to recognize that I was missing some of the human sides about just what we are all going through. And we make an assumption based on our own residency experience that everyone experiences residency in a similar way. And that's just not true. Um, So the first thing I would ask this person is I'd ask them how they're doing. And I would not be surprised at all that if this is new behavior that they're exhibiting, I would not be surprised at all if they are struggling with marital issues, if their parents have just recently gotten divorced after being married for 30 years, uh, if the person um, has things that are going on outside financial issues. uh, I would not be surprised at all, given this scenario, because that's just happened so many times. And you really can't address anything else until you have addressed some of these larger issues. And and even with surgery residents, I would always say it really is less important to me that you finish surgery residency, but that you have all the other things that are important and intact in your life that you want that are important to you. Um, So so this person, I'd start with the conversation. Uh, Depending on what you find there, um, that directs really where you go next. If you find concerns of uh, substance abuse, personal issues, things, there are very specific pathways um, and resources that you would need to utilize. Uh, however, if it's just that they are burned out, uh, you it can be as simple as, as letting them know what the consequences are of that continued behavior. And we've had that as well. And they, they stop that behavior because they recognize that here at the end of their career, or not the end of their career, but the end of their residency, they certainly don't want to do anything that would potentially jeopardize um, their career. And certainly unprofessional behavior is one of those things that we we see does. Um, so not knowing more information, I'd say the very first thing I would start with is how are you? And then even before sharing the scenarios with them, I would, I would find the answer to that question. So what do you do then when the resident does just unload on you all these personal things that have been going on. Their family's falling apart. You know, it's a mess at home. They can't pay their mortgage. And, you know, fine, you've gotten to the bottom of it. But how do you now set the expectations for the rest of the program to let everyone else know that this resident needs support and help without violating that trust that they've just set up with you? Yeah, that's a great question. Privacy and privacy for a program director. I'll say this on behalf of all program directors who every single program director will tell you that the hardest thing about being a program director is that you know a lot of things that you just can't share with people. And people get angry with you as a program director because they think that you should just be able to tell them every little detail about everybody else. And you just can't. I mean, your residents are almost like your patient list. And there's another a degree of privacy and confidentiality that is not only just professionalism, but it's also governed by employment laws. And so the things that that resident shares with you are locked. They are not to be shared with anyone else. The resident may share those, but they're not to be shared by you. And then the next thing is to determine whether there are any things that they need help with to get those things in order. And that could range from time off, which you cannot share with other people while they're taking that time off. Um, It could be support from an employment assistance program. Um, If it is impairing patient care, 
There are further actions that you can mandate, but if you don't really have a situation where it's impairing patient care, you just try to help as much as as much as you can. Um, but it really goes back to the beginning of there's no there's no assessment tool um, or you know, and I, I love assessment tools. Don't get me wrong, but there's not any single one that can really cross the breadth and complexity of every individual and every individual resident, and I would argue every individual faculty member because this happens at the faculty level as well. Um, it is so nuanced. We have things to guide us, but to find the exact answer, you'll never never find the same scenario twice. Well, listen, we're so grateful to have had you. Uh, we want to give you an opportunity to do our education sign out. You can uh, provide us with some take home points and summaries that you have for residents and teaching staff and other education leaders about how to identify and help the trainee that that needs some improvement. Yeah. Um, thanks for that. And, th- and thanks again for having me. This is this is wonderful. And this is obviously something I'm very passionate about is just continued uh, improvement and also the ability of our residents to provide the best patient care that they can for their patients in the future. That's really what it's about. Um, and I would say with that, I would say, number one, the goal of any educator and especially program director, associate program director, and I talked to our program directors about this also, is that your primary responsibility is actually to patients. It's not to residents. And all the things that you do for residents are to allow them to take care of patients as best they can, both patients today and also patients tomorrow. And so if you can reframe um, performance improvement plans, if you can, which other people call remediation, if you can reframe those uh, in ways that are patient-centered, um, you're likely to have better, better surgeons and better outcomes from that standpoint. I think the, the other thing that you heard me say earlier is the most dangerous thing you can do is label someone. Um, it doesn't help. Surgery is a five-year program for a reason. And many of us can think of a lot of people who struggled in their second year, struggled in their third year, and are on faculty now. Um, Many of us know people who have not passed the boards on the first try and are some of the best technically and operatively gifted individuals that we've worked with. Um, And so labeling people with certain incidents, by certain incidents, or by behaviors is probably the worst thing you can do. But instead, recognizing, and this is why moving education more to a competency-based framework rather than a time-based framework is even better, but recognizing where people are um, on a continuum of education uh, is best. Um, I talked about Anders Erickson earlier, and he... Um, Malcolm Gladwell uses the 10,000 hours, which he got from Anders Erickson. But Anders Erickson would tell you it's not really... 10,000 hours. It could be 7,000 hours. It could be 13,000 hours. It really depends on a two-way street between learners and teachers. Learners have to have, uh, they have to practice, they have to receive feedback, they have to apply that feedback. And then teachers, it's really important that they are um, receptive, good observers, understand uh, what's going on, and then give that focused feedback. So rather than label give focused feedback that helps someone get from point A to point B. And point B is not being a completed surgeon. Point B is the next spot um, on that continuum. So those would be the the major things that I would say. And then I would say to residents in general, um, you know, just every day, we always say every day is a learning day and it, it truly is. And the the sooner you can be comfortable with being uncomfortable, recognize what you don't know, um, and be able to uh, go through residency and go through residency in a way um, that you have the appropriate supervision and support at all times is, is the best thing you can do for your patients. And this is really about patients. Well, we are incredibly grateful for all your time and insights. This has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate it. 
So thank you so much. I appreciate you taking on this topic and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share some of these things. Thank you everyone for joining us. It was our pleasure to bring this to you. Please feel free to contact us if any more information would be helpful. Dominate surgical education. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.